Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. This week, we talk election security with one of America's foremost election security advocates, Jennifer Cohn. She lays out the many threats that are facing the integrity of our vote, both domestic and foreign. Some of them you're familiar with, but I can pretty much guarantee some of them are going to surprise you. Then we talk with Donna Sinclair. She is a professor of history at Washington State University, Vancouver, and she has just declared her candidacy for state representative in the 18th Legislative District. Also, in keeping with our discussion about voting, this week's essay is all about our first primary ballot. That is all ahead, so stay with us. According to U.S. intelligence, both foreign and domestic agents have previously tampered with our elections and are working to do so again as we speak. To help us understand the threat and to get a sense of what can be done, we are joined by Jennifer Cohn. She is an attorney and one of the country's foremost election security advocates. Her writing on the subject can be found in the New York Review of Books, Salon, and elsewhere. Jennifer Cohn, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. So, you know, it's a big topic. There's a lot to unpack. Uh, I think I'd like to just start by talking about what you see as some of the biggest threats to our election safety. I think the one that is on most people's minds right now is vote manipulation. So it's my understanding that while our elections have been interfered with in other ways, that actual votes themselves haven't been manipulated. Is is that accurate? And do you have reason to fear actual vote manipulation in 2020? Um, the answer is that the public, at least, and perhaps everyone else, no one else, knows whether there was vote tally manipulation in the 2016 election or even in most prior elections. And the reason that I say that is that experts say that the only way that you can determine for sure or really rule out for sure whether vote tallies have been changed is to conduct a robust manual audit or full hand recount of a software independent record of voter intent. Mm. So you want to come and that is typically that is a, a traditional hand marked paper ballot is completely software independent. And so you want to compare that against the electronic total. And the problem is we don't require robust manual audits in the U S or in most cases conduct them. And um, the, Manual recounts are few and far between, as we actually saw in 2016, and our manual recount laws are not very good and apply only with when the margin of victory is often minuscule. Well, you know, that brings up kind of a larger question here, which is why are our elections so disparate? It would seem that if they were somehow systematized, at least when it comes to federal elections, that doing something like a recount would be easier if everybody was kind of on the same page. Why so much difference between states and even sometimes difference within states? Well, it's a state's rights argument. And then there's a conflict sort of with the federal government's right to oversee elections because Oftentimes, you conduct the federal elections and the state elections concurrently. And up until now, really, the sort of states' rights argument has prevailed. I don't necessarily mean legally, but practically, that essentially most of the control over the elections has been ceded to the states, and Congress really hasn't interfered. And it's it's kind of a chilling thing because the whole concept of states' rights came from slavery slavery and segregation, right? And I think there may be some element of that when it comes – well, there definitely is some element of that when it comes to voter suppression. And I 
suspect or I'm concerned there may be some element of that, even when it comes to the actual voting machines themselves. Yeah, you can definitely connect the lines there in a lot of um, ominous and unfortunate ways. And, you know, I, I do want to get into a lot of what you recommend uh, mm-hmm. that would uh, actually help to solve a lot of the problems that we're going to unpack here. But I just want to touch on a couple more things that you have written about, brought to people's attention on social media. And one of those is ransomware attacks. And one happened uh, in 2016 in Palm Beach, Florida, that we've just learned about. Uh, and the ramifications there are pretty alarming. First of all, just tell us, what is a ransomware attack? It's when a um, an internet hacker goes on to someone, infiltrates someone's system, and they garble it all up and say that they won't uh, release it until a ransom is paid. Okay. And what makes voting systems in this country particularly vulnerable to that? Well, although the myth had been spread far and wide before the 2016 election and to a large extent um, even after that voting machines don't connect to the internet, there are voting machines in at least 10 states that um, that actually do connect to the internet and they do this via these, they have installed in them cellular modems that send uh, vote tallies over the internet. So that would be one way that someone could get into the actual voting machines. The other thing is, even if the voting machines themselves don't connect to the internet, they all receive programming before every election from centralized county or state computers called election management systems. And according to election security experts, most of those do connect to the internet on occasion, And even if they don't, they receive input from other systems that connect to the Internet. So there are multiple ways to get into the system on the reporting end as well. Um, The election Mm -hmm. websites where you report the totals connect to the Internet. And sometimes it just varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction how well they protect the systems that sort of uh, that send information to those reporting systems. So like the central tabulators have to send their data to these online reporting systems. And if you're using, for example, the same flash drive to go back and forth to these online systems, you can then infiltrate even the central tabulators. So there are multiple ways in that could make them vulnerable. But one thing that I've been, it's sort of been a sleeper issue that has me very, very concerned is the electronic poll books that are not um, used to tally the votes. They're used to confirm voter registrations when you check into the polling place on election day. And it used to be that most jurisdictions had paper voter lists. And increasingly since 2016, there has been a very significant spike in these electronic poll books, which um, connect to the internet during early voting. And they still need to communicate with each other even on election day. And so I think it was South Dakota, South Dakota or North Dakota uh, had problems after they connected theirs to the internet a while back on election day. And in LA County, they're going to connect them to the internet, both during early voting and election day. Um, Georgia, they connect uh, via Bluetooth on election day, which is also uh, very vulnerable. And the concern is they can um, send you, if they're hacked, they could send voters to the wrong precinct or, or tell voters that they've already voted when they haven't or that they're not registered to vote when they are. And on top of it, if you want to circle it back around to the vote tallying systems, in the only two counties where I've looked, these electronic poll books program the um, either the, the ballots or the access cards that are needed for voters to actually use the touchscreen voting machines themselves. So they... Um, 
when the voter checks in the like in LA County, it's it's a paper ballot, but it gets a QR code and they need to then insert that into the voting machine in order to vote. So there's sort of an internet connection there. And if if a ransomware attack were to attack these electronic poll books, what that means is voters wouldn't be able to use the voting machines, even if there were backup paper voter lists, you still wouldn't be able to use the voting machines because they're dependent on these you know, internet connected electronic poll books. Yeah. There are just so many points of vulnerability, as you've yes. said. And as a result, you are uh, a big advocate for hand-marked paper ballots. And while that seems to be a growing consensus, there is this intermediary technology called ballot marking machines. You've written a great deal about these ballot marking machines, um, and you've described them a little bit when you're talking about the voting systems in Los Angeles. But just briefly, Mm -hmm. tell us what they are, ballot marking machines, and why we should be concerned. Sure. So they are touchscreen voting machines that function as hackable electronic pens. Their only real function is to mark a paper ballot for you, even if you are capable of doing that with a ballpoint pen. And unlike a ballpoint pen, they are vulnerable to hacking and electronic malfunction. So why are they in use? Um, Well, they make the vendors a lot more money. They cost between two and three times as much money as um, using hand-marked paper ballots and scanners. And I want to emphasize they really are just the the marking component. You still need a separate component if you're going to use computers to count the ballots. You still need a separate component, a scanner. The scanner can also be part of an integrated system combined with the ballot marking device. And the problem is the more layers of electronics you add on – sort of the more opacity opacity there is to the system and the more complexity there is to the system. And it becomes just very difficult to identify all the vulnerabilities and um, much less fix them and yeah. figure out which counties have introduced different vulnerabilities. And, you know, you kind of were alluding to following the money earlier um, in an article that you wrote for the New York Review of Books, you wrote about two vendors of these ballot marking machines, Election Systems Software LLC, referred to as ES&S, and Dominion Voting. And I was absolutely gobsmacked to learn that they account for more than 80 percent of U.S. election equipment. Is that correct? That is correct. And it's been a talking point that I've used over and over and over again because it was one of the most shocking things for me to learn as well. And I think more people need to realize that, especially when we hear that our system is too decentralized to allow an outcome altering hack. It's really not true if you have just two vendors accounting for 80% of U.S. election equipment. What can you tell us about these companies, specifically ES&S? So ES&S was founded in the 1970s by two brothers, and it was founded with money from the families of two religious rights billionaires um, who belong to a very shady right-wing networking, political networking group called the Council for National Policy. And to give you an idea of the council's more recent members, as of 2014, they included most of the Cambridge Analytica movers and shakers. So it had the the Mercers and Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. So um, that's sort of where it got its origins. But so there were the two brothers who, who started it. One of those two brothers went to another vendor around the time just before the 2000 election called Global Election Systems and became its president. And as president, one of the first things that happened was they bought a company from a convicted embezzler whose crimes were computer tampering. 
And that convicted embezzler then became the largest shareholder of this company called Global. And Global, you may you probably don't know the name Global, or many people might not know it. But I don't what know. That company, what that company is, it changed its name to Diebold Election Systems. Now, that's um, something so that that's, most people are familiar with. Yeah. Right. And so what happened was in uh, 2009, so you had these two vendors basically going on one was run by one brother and the other by the other brother. So ESNS and Diebold. And then ESNS just made it formal around 2009 and bought Diebold, and at which point um, the company accounted for 70% of U.S. election equipment. And what happened is Chuck Schumer uh, got wind of this and got concerned, I guess, and asked the antitrust division of the Department of Justice to, to intervene, which they did. And so they broke it up. But um, another sort of equally shady new vendor arose sort of from obscurity in Canada and bought some of the Diebold election systems assets and Diebold supposedly, well, it did technically dissolve. ESNS kept many, and I, I suspect it took most of the Diebold election systems contracts. And so now you have ESNS and Dominion with Diebold sort of technically dissolved into mostly ESNS, but a little bit of Dominion as well. Well, and it's my understanding that there is a, a large plurality of states using these uh, voting machines, and also that the people who are responsible for getting those machines into states have wined and dined election officials. Is that true? Oh, yes, that's true. So ESNS, McClatchy reported around. Uh, 2018, a really great reporter named Greg Gordon broke the story that ESNS had this advisory board. I think it still has it. And they put a state election officials onto their advisory board and then they fly, they wine and dine them and fly them around the country. <laughs> Conferences, including places like Las Vegas, where they got show tickets and it had an open bar and different outings. And um, so these new touchscreen ballot marking devices that are super expensive and most election security experts recommend have proliferated in the past several years sort of concurrently with um, these state election officials having these close relationships and being wined and dined by the vendors. And so, for example, in South Carolina, the head election official there, it turns out, had received something like $20,000 worth of gifts and in, in, in various different forms over about mm. a decade. And there was a big brouhaha with the League of Women Voters opposing the state buying these new touchscreen ESNS ballot marking devices and wanting sort of the gold standard of election integrity, which is hand-marked paper ballots, and that they were just ignored and the state plowed ahead and they bought these for the entire state. So there's actually the same system. So palms, palms were essentially greasy. I mean, I'm I'm literally sitting here shaking. You can't see me, but I'm I'm literally sitting here shaking my head. I mean, this is the, the, the stuff. The corruption of, is, of is really shocking. Yeah. And it's sort of this angle I wasn't really expecting. A lot of times the intrigue with voting machine history is has there been cheating? And that intrigue is there and it's it remains there because we can't really tell because we don't conduct these meaningful right. manual audits and recounts. Yeah. Well, I don't want to freak people out too much, <laughs> much more than we already have. So I do want to get into some solutions. But I will just ask you, as we uh, transition into that, how you got into election security and, and why have you taken such an interest in it? Uh, well, I was worried about the outcome of the 2016 election. And I was on Twitter a lot because that was where a lot of the resistance was forming. And somebody asked if there was anyone who could research voting machines. And I had a long career as an attorney and a partner doing um, insurance coverage law, which is not election security law by any stretch. 
but I know how to do research and very well and how to source things very well. And I figured I had time because I was no longer practicing. And when I found out the great chasm between what election officials were telling the public about a decentralized system and voting machines not connected to the internet and what really respected election security experts were saying, which is three vendors connected to the internet. And even if they're not, the machines that program them are connected to the internet. That really grabbed me and I got worried. So I thought, well, I want to just see who owns these companies. And then I ran into the embezzler at um, global slash Diebold election systems. And I, I, I was horrified that I didn't know this and how could I not have known this? And, and, you know, other people that I knew didn't know this either. And I, I thought, well, this would be an opportunity to educate sort of a critical mass of people to try to yeah. do what we can to make the system better. Well, and in keeping with that, you have seven prescriptives that you lay out to make our elections more secure. So, yeah, hand-marked paper ballots is kind of the gold standard here. And I'll just ask you, because we in Washington, we do mail-in ballots, so that portion of it is absolutely done on paper. It is hand-marked. Um, are those at risk at some other juncture in the voting process, the tabulation, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, it's really complicated with vote by mail that when people see a lot of the concerns I write about with touch screens, a lot of them just say the answer is everybody do vote by mail. And as with everything else, the devil is in the details. There is no perfect voting system by any means. And so you could do vote by mail really badly and leave it wide open to fraud by, in, in particular, the chain of custody is very difficult to maintain with, with vote by mail. And Really, the way to look at it, with no matter what type of system you're looking at, is you want is transparency is the best safeguard against fraud. And so, if you have paper ballots and you count them behind hand-marked paper ballots, you count them behind closed doors. That's obviously going to leave you open to fraud. As yeah. soon as you mail your ballot and you lose control of it, as soon as you lose sight of your ballot, you you lose a certain degree of control of it. Um, again, no system is perfect. And so if there are enough controls in the state for the chain of custody, you know, where they, if they keep really accurate chain of custody records and maybe if they send two people, not just one, to pick up the ballots every day, and if they give people a, a way to track whether their ballot was counted and if they give people a period of time to correct any deficiencies. I suspect Washington does it well, but I, I don't know because I, I can't honestly say that I have looked into it carefully. People don't cite Washington vote by mail as, as a significant problem with fraud that I've heard. And that's about as much as I can say. Well, one thing that we did try this year in Seattle was a special district election where people could vote by phone. It evidently wasn't that hacked, was but you, uh, one of your prescriptives yeah. is to ban Internet voting of any kind. Just talk briefly about the specific dangers of something like voting by phone. Well, it's, it's voting over the Internet and election security experts almost. I mean, again, it's really difficult to get anyone in the election security community to agree on anything. And yet pretty much all of the experts, even some of the ones who are more laissez-faire about other issues, agree that internet, we're not ready for internet voting, online voting, that it just can be hacked. There was a big vote by mail system that was being deployed in Switzerland and they made a production about opening up to see if, if hackers could hack it. They sort of presented it as a challenge and sure enough, they hacked it and, mm. and then they didn't end up using it. But so, yeah, so it, there's pretty much a, consen a consensus. 
I mean, it seems like the very definition of hackable, uh, something that's online, because where did, where did computer hacking begin? It began online. So uh, right. you have talked about the risk of modems. Um, another step that you recommend is removing something called remote access. That was new to me. What is meant by remote access? What is it? It is software such as PC Anywhere software that allows someone to access the the machine, the election management system, in this case, from a remote location, from a distant location. And that would be an election official who could do that? Well, whoever has whoever has the the codes to do it. It could be anyone. It is my understanding that the House has taken up a measure to prevent remote access when it comes to voting. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So Senator Ron Wyden drafted a bill called the PAVE Act that would, among other things, ban remote access. And the House then um, incorporated most of the provisions of his bill, and it called it the SAFE Act, and that has passed the House and is now sitting in the Senate in, in limbo. It's one of the three bills that Marsha Blackburn a week or two ago wouldn't give a house uh, knockdown. Somehow she, she killed it procedurally somehow. Got it. Okay. So that is something that if listeners were inclined, they could push their senators to uh, make some noise around the SAFE Act. Yeah. The other thing I would recommend is contacting, you can just Google it, the House Administration Committee and asking them to issue subpo- additional subpoenas to the vendors to find out where all of the vendors, which of their customers, if any, have had remote access software. We already know ESNS had it, but which of the others and, and ESNS itself uh, had it? Where did they have it? When was it removed? Those types of questions. Great. Okay. And then just the last three uh, steps that you recommend, we've gone over uh, already, but I'll just uh, go over them one more time. Uh, you recommend manual audits. Uh, you recommend paper voter lists, which can't be tampered with. And then um, you recommend protecting voter registration. Most people are content to just check online to see if their voter registration is current. Is there something else that we should be doing? I think it certainly can't hurt to take a screenshot and keep it in case you need to prove to someone that you were registered and in case that your your election officials are saying, according to their lists, you never were. Okay. Just as one last thing, as, as sort of a call to action to listeners, uh, you recommend donating to the Coalition for Good Governance. Um, Absolutely. This was uh, something that was new to me. Tell us about the Coalition for Good Governance. What do they do? It's a small nonprofit run by a woman named Marilyn Marks, who is quite probably the best election security advocate in the entire country. And I don't mean any offense to any of the other really great ones that are out there, but she's a whirlwind as far as actually finding things out and using the courts. She's not a lawyer, but she um, she should be. Or she doesn't need to be, I guess. She uses the courts effectively to expose and tell the public and warn the public and lawmakers about vulnerabilities in voting machines. And she's done a really terrific job in Georgia. A lot of what we know about voting machine vulnerabilities in recent years has come from her litigation there. And it really has national implications because, again, we're talking about the vendors in Georgia are the same vendors that provide most of the election equipment nationally. So I I do recommend donating to her group. 
And then just a couple other things. There is an organization called smartelections.us. That's their URL. Uh, They're doing something pretty interesting around the vote this year. What can you tell us about them? Yes. So they're organizing something that they're calling the Count the Vote Initiative. And what they're doing is organizing volunteers to photograph precinct totals after the voting ends on election night. And those are often posted outside the polling place. And then you would compare those to the reported electronic totals and they should match up. And if they don't, um, that can provide the basis for an election challenge if one is needed. Anything else that you would recommend listeners do to uh, help keep our elections safe and secure? Yes. If they're looking for other organizations to donate to, I would say the National Election Defense Coalition is also doing really great work and they have a lawsuit pending in Philadelphia challenging one of the more dangerous versions of these touchscreen ballot marking devices that we discussed. Jennifer Cohn is one of America's foremost election security advocates. You can follow her on Twitter at Jenny Cohn one. Uh, I will have the information for everything that we just discussed. But uh, Jennifer Cohn, thank you so much for your time. This has been just uh, fascinating. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. So my next guest, Donna Sinclair, is a Democrat running for state representative in the 18th LD. That is a district that includes large portions of Clark County, including East Vancouver. We are so glad that she could join us. Donna Sinclair, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. So just by way of introduction, I will tell people that you have a very impressive academic background. You have a master's in history, a PhD in urban studies. Uh, You are a professor of history at Washington State University of Vancouver and also at Western Oregon University. You are an oral historian, which I think is just so cool. Um, And we will definitely talk about your platforms. But just from a personal standpoint, I'm wondering, given your background, why you are choosing to run for office? Um, It doesn't seem like the classic background uh, for running for a political position, does it? Well, it could, but I'm I'm curious to see how you uh, thread all that together. Yeah, well, let me, I'll I'll tell you, um, I got involved in politics um, in the wake of the election of 2016. So I'm one of those women who kind of stood up and said, wait a minute, I thought I was doing my part and I realized I needed to do more. So that's that's the really short story. Uh, I went to a actually a transportation town hall right after that election um, with my local state legislator, not the person I'm running against. And I'm not going to name any names, but this particular person had posted on Facebook that if people didn't like um, what they were seeing on the television with with President Trump um, or the things that he said, they should just turn the TV or the radio off. And I feel like that's no way for a public official to respond to their constituents. So I went to this town hall um, about transportation, and what I witnessed was um, far-right ideology. That's, you know, just in a nutshell. And at that point, um, I, I saw that person and the work that they were doing and how they were being supported and what they were tapping into in order to gain that support. And I said to myself, gee, you didn't do this intentionally, but you have been preparing to be involved in politics for the last 25 years. So um, it's time for you to step up and do something. Well, it's impressive. And yeah, I think what you're talking about is it's been an extraordinary wake up call for a lot of people who have just recognized the amount of ugliness and vitriol that has been brewing just directly beneath the surface. Um, Let me ask you a little bit about your district, because people may not 
know okay. that much about the 18th. As I said, it's in the southern part of the state uh, because every member of the delegation, uh, the legislative delegation, is Republican. I uh, am assuming that it leans pretty red there. Yes. Um, it leans red, but that doesn't mean it's all red. It's um, in the last election, the last Democrat to run, um, we shifted from 39% to 43% to 47%. Oh, wow. So we're only five points away, and I, I intend to tip it over the line. Um, we have no east side representation at this point. Right now, the people who, the Republicans who are um, in the state house both live on the west side and the state senator who's also a republican lives in the in the north county so there isn't anybody to represent my side of the district what sorts of issues would you like to see better represented um i'm really looking at from a very pragmatic practical standpoint bread and butter issues. We have transportation issues that have not been addressed. And so when I talk about representation, that's one of the big issues I'm talking about. Um, Unfortunately, our caucus um, a number of years ago halted a new bridge across the Columbia River, um, a new I-5 bridge. Um, And part of it is, you know, we pay the same taxes here in Southwest Washington that everyone else does, but we don't get the funding, partly because our caucus doesn't Um, I guess they don't go to bat for us. Um, I just feel like they need to fight a little bit harder to get something done. And what I've seen is instead a lot of no votes on everything, which means that they're not working across the aisle. Now, I I think that um, at least a couple of people have been trying to do a little more in the last year. I can see a bit of a shift, but um, but it's too little too late. We should not be our, our traffic situation in Southwest Washington is just ridiculous. Well, so that's that's transportation. You also say that you want to guide regional growth uh, without diminishing quality of life. I'd love for you to kind of unpack that. Um, you've said that growth in your district in particular has caused tensions. How so? Well, so my district, I grew up around here, so I'm going to back up. Part of my county is um, the North County area. Was It was all farmland when I was growing up. Um, some of the roads that are main interchanges now were literally, I remember them as gravel roads. That's how small it was. Mm. Um, and so we have gone just since the, the um, late 1980s, we have doubled in size. And so this was farmland, and it is now a suburban um, haven. There's been some some nicely planned growth, but in some areas, there's just a lot of development that really is sprawl. And so, um, for example, in one part of my district, uh, we had the development of a Casino with the Cowlitz Indian tribe. And nearby, there's a huge housing development. Now, that housing development was supposed to be created in conjunction with some industrial development and jobs, and that didn't happen. It's just houses. That's all it is. Um, And so what I think is that we need to really work hard to ensure that we have sustainable development that includes overlapping issues like jobs education and environment, um, that clean air and clean water should be at the center of our planning, but so should uh, things like vocational technical education. And so I'm thinking about something along the lines of a a vocational um, technical school in North Clark County, because we don't have anything like that in that area that could actually partner with uh, trade schools, for example, in sustainable development methods. 
So that's all a very integrated approach. Um, you know, and something else you talk about wanting to take on is affordable housing. That kind of fits in with all of that. That is a challenge that's facing pretty much every district in the states. Talk about how you'd want to address it in the 18th. Right. Well, that's a great question. So um, one of the things that I have observed is that um, even even in preparing for my campaign, there was discussion of, you know, the platform of keeping housing affordable. Well, we're already past that. Housing is no longer affordable. Um, if you are a young family with uh, service industry jobs, you can't buy a house. It's just out of your reach. Um, so that that's one of the issues that I think we need to address. Um, I know that in another part of my district, and actually even a little bit where I live, that homelessness has increased significantly. And I just read an article um, from the Seattle Times yesterday about traumatic brain injury. Mm. The, the It said that 50% of the people who were surveyed um, actually have traumatic brain injuries, um, 50% of those who are homeless. And so mental health, again, it's this integrative approach, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about social services and education, all of these things are intimately connected. And so in order to address issues of homelessness, you have to invest resources in ensuring that people not only um, have a place to sleep. That needs to be first. People need to have a place to sleep, um, but also that they obtain the services that they need, whatever those services are. And oftentimes those are ser those services are things that have to do with life skills, particularly if they have been um, had some sort of brain injury. That's one thing. It's not that everybody who's homeless has experienced that, um, but that's something that we need to address. So mental health is a big part of it. The other thing is that um, I think it's really important that we recognize that but there's a disparity between um, wages and housing. You know, we all know that the general rule is that your your rent shouldn't be more than 30 percent of your income. Right. right. Well, with the median income and rent, it's over half of a person's income. Well, so, so then I'll ask you again, just as a follow up to that, how from a legislative standpoint, do you address that? Because, you know, as we move into. Uh, a gig economy. And as we're seeing what I think is referred to now as underemployment, people who are working mm -hmm. three, four jobs and are still, you know, having to choose between electricity and rent and things like that. From a legislative standpoint, how do you impact that? Well, I'll tell you what, right now I am in an investigative process. I'm talking with people. I'm meeting with someone who is a homelessness expert from Community Services Northwest. Um, I think you have to take a multi-pronged approach. Um, and so, for example, here in Clark County, we have um, we have a project called Community Roots Collaborative, where uh, the Community Roots Collaborative is a nonprofit that just raised money so that there could be uh, like four units placed into a house to, to get people off the streets. That's one thing. Um, secondly, I think that we really have to talk to experts. I'm thinking about development, for example. So we know that there are impact fees that actually contribute to funding education, right? Mm -hmm. um, these are some of the ways that we have, have dealt with policy in the past in order to support growth. Um, is it possible? And I don't know the answers to this, so I'm just going to be completely honest. I'm working on it. I'm a scholar. I'm a researcher. And I'm not going to say I have a solution until I actually have a real solution. Um, but I know that there are, must be ways to 
incentivize low-income housing and to ensure that we can actually create housing that isn't just multi-million dollar um, estates. We need smaller homes that are built that people can afford to purchase and to live in. Um, I think that there are there are policies that can be put in place so that we don't have skyrocketing rents um, just because uh, people who own homes can, you know, people who are um, landlords can raise the rent. Um, I know this because I actually have a house. I lived in a house for, I still own the house that we bought in 1989 for $51,000. So I bought that with my first husband. I lived there until 2007 when I moved to Washougal um, and I got married again, but I lived in that house and um, I rent that house out now for $1,350 a month. Repeatedly, people tell me, you ought to raise the rent. You can raise the rent there. Um, you could probably get $1,600 a month for that place now. Um, and I'm not doing it because what it does is artificially increase the cost of rent. So right. do I have an answer? I don't have an answer. I think there are multiple answers and I'm going to do everything that I can to figure out what they are. Well, you know, I'll just say candidly that that kind of openness and willingness to look for solutions in that way is just it's a very good indicator of the kind of legislator that you might be, because, you know, so much of what happens in Olympia is done by committees. So that means that you are not just working potentially on solutions for the 18th LD, but also for districts all across the state. And I, I think that is tremendous. I appreciate that. So before I let you go, I do want to ask you about your family history. You have mentioned that you are a Washington native, but you haven't really unpacked the full extent of it. Uh, your family first came to the region in the 1850s uh, before Washington was even a state. Uh, tell us what you know about that. Um, so uh, part of my family, so uh, my, let's see, my seventh great, actually she's my fourth great grandmother, um, she joined her brother and many of the members of the of her family um, out here in about 1873. But my uh, one of my uncles came in 1853 and settled at Oak Point, Washington. And so he was among the early settlers. And in fact, as a historian, I was doing research one day and came across the letters of Silas Plimpton. So I'm related to the Plimpton family. So for example, in Westport, Oregon, there is a creek named Plimpton Creek. Um, and so that's where our family was um, at one point. So I had um, some serendipitous kinds of things happen. Uh, at one point in my career, about 2012, I was working with a pro on a project for the Chinook Indian Nation. And at that point, um, I was working on some tribal histories and we were looking at archaeological sites, but also working with the contemporary Chinook to create a website and do oral histories and all of the kinds of exciting, fun work that I get to do. And I came across uh, several times um, a, something in the historical documents that said that Oliver Perry Graham introduced the fish trap on the Columbia River. Oh, wow. Um, I, which I found really ironic because that's my great, great, great grandfather. And my mother has his frying pan and I have pictures of him. And here I was working um, in collaboration with the Chinook. So it was kind of a form of um, reconciliation in some ways that I didn't intend in the first place, but well, which I... Um, which I found really serendipitous and interesting. Yeah, that's just extraordinary. And, you know, I'll also mention that, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, uh, you are an oral historian and you did a history specifically of your region called Clark County Stories. I, I'm wondering, were there any stories that you stumbled upon that surprised you about your region? 
I don't know if I found anything that surprised me. I've done a lot of history of this region back to from the settlement period, um, working with the National Park Service to do histories of Vancouver and Vancouver barracks um, up to the Clark County Stories Project, which one of the best parts of it, I think, was that I involved students in facilitating conversations. And with uh, Dr. Sue Peabody at WSU Vancouver, um, we went from a public history class project and exhibit that's at the Clark County Historical Museum to a series of conversations about migrations. And I think that was the that was the best um, program that we did overall. We had about 60 people at the Vancouver Library. And from that, we developed um, several new interviews. So one of them was a woman who was a refugee from Vietnam. Mm. Um, and that story was incredibly compelling. Um, there was another story. One of my students interviewed someone who was involved in the development of the first mosque in Vancouver. Um, there were people who were engaged with um, with African-American history in Vancouver. And there were people who had grown up in this area um, even before World War II. And what we did is we brought these people together to start talking with one another. And so when I think of what I'm doing right now um, with running for office, that's my main goal. I want people to start engaging in civil discourse because as an oral historian, what I know is that when you sit down and you listen to people and you talk with them, you find that you actually have so much more in common than you might think. Yeah. So if you get stuck in ideological ruts, one of the best ways to get out of them is to sit down and listen to somebody's story, to hear their story. Where did they come from? It tells you a lot about why they think the way that they do. And it helps us all to recognize that what really matters to us is things like our families, our kids' education. We want a better future for them. Um, those are the things that really drive what I'm doing right now. I want us to move away from all of the ideological um, garbage that just distracts us from the very real issues um, that enrich our community. And some of that enrichment, a lot of it comes from actually knowing each other, regardless of our background, regardless of race, ethnicity, um, gender, all of it. All of those things can come together if we just listen to each other. I think that is a, a perfect summation of uh, pretty much everything that you uh, have discussed here on the show. Uh, I will just ask you um, if people want to learn more about your campaign, if they would like to donate, if they would like to volunteer, where can they learn more? Um, my website address is SinclairForState.com, and that's a number four, SinclairForState.com. And there's a volunteer form that, that people can fill out on there. Um, there's a donate button. Um, they can also follow me on Facebook at SinclairForState. Um, and I'm on Twitter at SinclairForState. <laughs> so, um, and my, my website is actually being updated. By the end of this week, it's going to be uh, a little bit stronger than it is right now. We got a draft out there. And we got things started. I'm in, in the middle of teaching right now, but I decided I wanted to get into this race now because there's a lot to do and a lot of people to meet. And um, so I'm, I'm moving forward. Donna Sinclair is running for state representative in the 18th Legislative District.
So let's talk about the primary, shall we? By the time that you hear this, you should probably have your ballot in hand. They are being mailed out this week and are due back on March 10th, which is the day of our moved up primary. As the chair of the Washington State Democrats, Tina Podlodowski, mentioned in a discussion that we had a couple weeks back, our state actually has a chance to play a decisive role in who the nominee is going to be. Now, there has been some confusion about the ballot, so since I've been out there canvassing, helping to explain things, along with my mom, Jan Cox, I thought that I would just give my spiel here on the show. So the reason why things are different is because this is the first time that Washington will be doing a primary instead of a caucus. And, you know, considering how Iowa's caucus went down this year, the timing probably couldn't be better. Now, if you have your ballot, you can see that on the envelope are two boxes, one for Democratic Party and one for Republican Party. You need to check one of these. And, you know, if you're listening to this show, we know which one that's going to be. And it needs to correspond with the candidate that you are voting for on the ballot itself. In other words, if you select Democrat, you have to vote for a Democrat. And if you're a Republican, well, I would make a joke at this point, but I actually don't want to mislead anyone. And I also very much do not want to get in any kind of trouble. So just, you know, do the same thing. Now, people have been asking why they need to declare a party preference. And it is because, at least on the Democratic side, the rules of the Democratic National Convention stipulate that anyone participating in state primaries has to be voting for a Democrat. This is according to our friend Will Casey, communications director for the Washington State Democratic Party. Since we don't register our party affiliation in Washington, this was the most expedient way they could do it. And accordingly, I will add that selecting a party preference on your ballot does not lock you into any party preference going forward. So you select the party of the candidate you're going to vote for, you vote for that candidate, and then you also need to sign and date it. It's pretty simple, but failure to do everything that I just outlined will mean that your ballot is void and will be thrown out. I've also heard people question why the party choice is on the outside of the ballot. This apparently has to do with the ease of sorting on election day, but some people have been upset that this can potentially make your affiliation public. Pretty much everybody that I know is proud to check that big blue box, but if that is not you, you can use a ballot drop box. You will find a list of drop boxes in a foldout with your ballot. So that's that. Oh, and uh, if for whatever reason you haven't registered to vote yet, do not worry. You can register online up to eight days before the election. So that would be March 2nd. And I will have the link for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. I will just close up by restating the obvious here. Everybody knows that the stakes are high with this election. You will know it if you are on social media at all, or if you watch the news, or if you are, you know, the carbon-based life form with a pulse. The sorts of battles going on right now within the Democratic Party are not fun. They are unnerving. They are worrisome. They are often infuriating. But I will tell you the one thing that lets me get back to sleep at night. Anybody who says they know what's going to happen next is lying. We could be in a historical pattern of some sort, doomed to repeat itself, or we might be about to shatter old frameworks and paradigms and move into new political alignments and new ways of governing. We don't know. We also might have a candidate after Super Tuesday, or this could drag on until the convention. I don't know. You don't know. No one knows. So the only thing that we can do is the work. We write our postcards. We canvas for a candidate we believe in. We text bank. We phone bank. Whatever it is. We can't know what's going to happen. But we can know that we are doing everything that we can to make happen what we want to happen. 
And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. To get in touch, email us at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. My thanks again to Jennifer Cohen and Donna Sinclair. Special thanks, as always, to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.